Hello and welcome to the Hopeless Wonder Podcast Extra, episode 28, with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers, and Andy McBride. And thank you to those who are watching with us right now live. And for those that aren't watching right now, thanks for those that are listening. So without further ado, we go into episode 28, which is a live stream. Um, unfortunately, YouTube didn't seem to uh, show us automatically live when we did go live. However, you didn't miss much of an intro in that sense. Uh, it's the usual kind of banterish self for myself. Anyway, we move into the question which I posed to both Andy and Craig around the European fixtures that took place last weekend and in particular around Man United's progress to the Europa League final. So I pose this to Andy and this is where we start off with. Can like, and I think Roma really gave it uh, a good crack. I mean, they had about 22 shots and about 30, 13 of them were on target. So it had it could have been a much more difficult night than it really needed to be. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think if we gave a more clinical team 22 shots on goal, I don't think it would end well. But David De Gea played really, really well. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, there were some positives in there. Obviously, Cavani continuing to score. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think um, it's somewhat of a surprise that... Um, Arsenal uh, didn't make it through to the all English bonanza of the uh, you know all English Champions League final, and obviously we had the potential for an all English Europa League final, but um, someone had to be a letdown. Uh, but yeah, it was um, it was a good week on the uh, playing football front. Good times. And what about you, Craig? Obviously, your beloved Roma had to uh, pull back a huge goal deficit. They didn't do too badly on that second leg, I have to say. But overall, a bit disappointed, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, the damage was done in the first leg. And I was actually driving up to Scotland as the first leg was happening. Stopped at the services. I uh, looked at the score and thought, Christ, I can't, this, this is done already. Um, but yeah, valiant performance in the second leg. Yeah, Andy summed it up really, really well quite wasteful with chances. All they really could do for a bit of pride was win the second leg and, and not make it embarrassing. Um, but yeah, very much, much of the matches from Roma. Yeah, no, sure. Um, and I'm sure we'll move on to this point from the Anglo-Italian pod, which is uh, about being glad that there's not a full English final for this one. So um, yeah, I don't know what you guys thought of Arsenal's performance, but pretty shocking. Um, Andy, get your quick thoughts on it. Um, I think it sort of sums up their season, really. I think um, when you look at the beginning of the season, a lot of people are saying that Thomas Partey would be like the absolute game changer. They'd given, you know, Aubameyang a new contract, which in all fairness, he was in decent form at the time. And I think all of their big players that are supposed to step up and really push him on this season haven't done you know Pepe Ubameyang uh, Thomas Pye you know the real expensive signings that you want to you'd expect to contribute season you know week in week out aren't doing and the ones that are sort of holding up the, the fort if you like the likes of you know Saka and uh, Tierney um, they're doing really really well but they should be the ones supporting the big stars not the other way around so uh, yeah I think it's going to be a difficult summer I mean it is probably surprising that there's not been a huge amount of talk over um, Mikel Arteta recently because um, you think about the, the stick that Oli you know Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has got over the past 18 months or so um, it is a little bit strange that everyone's just like yeah 
Arteta's got a plan. It's all good. Uh, I'm not sure if this is part of the plan, but hey, <laughs> they've got vibes. And Craig, obviously, we've just had this um, question come in from FTLOL podcast, um, which asked us about Arteta, actually, whether, you know, the sacking of him would be any good for Arsenal. I think one comment that I saw on Arsenal Fan TV was around, and this is something really surprising for me to actually reflect that Arsenal Fan TV has something valid here, but to say there's been an acceptance of shitness across the board, so whether it's been at boardroom level, at management level, and even within the squad itself, it's been just utter shitness across the board. Um, do we think, like, obviously sacking Arteta will improve Arsenal in the long term? I'm not, I'm not too sure. <laughs> That's a really good question, and yeah, I agree, Rogers. He says the managers are not going to come to Arsenal because Arsenal will not be playing in Europe next season. It's a fact. Forget, forget those names. They're not going to get them. Um, the problem with Arsenal now is, and you're right, when Arsenal were aiming for championship football, is, is it aiming to be the champions of England? If even if they had a bad season, they would finish second or third, right? But the goal was always to be, and their standard was to be champions of England. And then when you accept top four as success, and you don't win and you have a bad season, you end up in the Europa League. And then for the last few seasons, just Europa League has been acceptable. And then when you have a bad season like they've had now, you end up mid-table. And I don't think, I don't think they're a top four squad, I don't think they're a top six squad. So I don't think Arteta, sacking Arteta is going to instantly bring success next season because they need a massive, massive overhaul. Mm. Because that is not a good squad of players. The question is then, is where's, where's they really going to get the money from? Because they're not in the Champions League, not yeah. even in the Europa League. And it's going to be really, really difficult. I think Arsenal fans, sorry for those listening, then for the long haul here, this is going to be a four or five year gradual rebuild. There's not going to be a bounce back because they're just not going to team. I mean, Obama Yang's a classic example of where Arsenal are going wrong, where they made that mistake with Mesut Ozil. And you thought, mm. right, they're finally starting to get that away from the club and free up those wages. And then they just jump headfirst into an Obama Yang deal that's now just hamstrung them again. Yeah. Paying a 31, 32 year old player who's who can show glimpses of brilliance. Of course he can, but when was the last time he scored 25 goals in a Premier League season? I, I, I don't think he has ever. Mm -hmm. Players like that shouldn't be on that kind of money. And I think they kind of shit the bed a little bit when it looked like he might be leaving, but they might have been better off served, let him go and try and use that money somewhere else. So uh, to answer the question, should Arteta be the Arsenal manager? Probably not. Can they get someone better? They should be looking to, but sacking him will not bring in success next year because I think it goes far, far deeper than that. And what about you, Andy? Obviously, you've got a same sort of situation in Man United. It looks like it's calming down a bit, but obviously with the fan protests recently, that's probably boiled over a few questions around the ownership itself. But if we refer to Arsenal right now, obviously there's still a lot of question marks around that ownership and what they're going to do within the club itself. I mean, by all accounts, they've kind of tried to reiterate the point that they're going to invest into that team. Um, but I don't know where you start with that Arsenal team because I think you have to sell a lot of those players. My question mark would be who's going to buy those players because they've been really poor for Arsenal. Um, I don't think there's any aspirational clubs that are looking for those players. And I think the only players that you could say are reflecting in terms of a good transfer market deal would be the younger players that are coming through, the likes of maybe Emil Smith-Rowe, for example, um, to an extent Partey and maybe Kieran Tierney. So... Yeah, where where would you start with Arsenal? I think they've got similar problems to United is that the frustration for Arsenal fans is not necessarily 
just strictly down to how much money is spent. I mean, I think both clubs feel that they could invest in the squad a bit more. But investment isn't just spending money. Investment is investing in the best personnel you can get for your money. It's investing in the 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 manage the best of the best of the management team that you can get. You know, every and, they, and that's why you hire uh, managers. And so you look at Arsenal off the pitch and you go, well, have they got the best manager they can for the money? I don't think they have. Have they got the, uh, you know, Edu as a director of football, um, you know, especially if there's sort of somewhat dubious links to Keir Jorbikun, you know, is that the, really the way they should be doing business, you know, especially in a modern day of data analytics and things like that. So you don't really feel that they're investing in the best personnel to support the manager. Um, and as Craig said, I think that there's probably better out there, uh, but there doesn't seem to be much support back of house either because um, they keep they keep failing window after window. You know, last seat, you know, the summer just gone. People are saying we finally turned the corner. We finally got some good players in, and that for whatever reason doesn't seem to have worked. Um, you know, they, on the bright side, they do have a lot of really good young talent. You know, I think letting Joe Willock out on loan um, to Newcastle appears to be a bit of a mistake if you consider the goals he scored and especially the lack of goals that seem to come from centre midfield. I mean, I don't know what goes through your heads where you go, I'm going to stick with Mohamed El Nani in midfield and let Joe Willock go. It's just doesn't it doesn't appear to make much sense. Um, and also the Abamyang thing. I mean, why would you give somebody um you know especially a striker whose prime asset is his lightning pace and his finishing mm. now when you take that pace away which will happen as he gets older what have you got left and i don't think they've got 300 grand worth of footballer left if you take away his primary asset you know you get people like say harry kane for instance he could play until he's 40 because he's a good all-round footballer whereas i think abamyang would be playing in bloody um america or china in three or four years you can guarantee it it certainly won't be mm. the top level and i guess in terms of moving on the substandard members that they've got they're you know they're they're a super club playing super club wages but so I don't really see who's going to be able to afford them because unless another top tier team uh, wants to buy those players, then yeah, I think they've got a few problems. Yeah, definitely. And while we're on the theme of North London clubs, we had this question earlier by Joel, who asked us, who would you rather be a Spurs or Arsenal fan <laughs> <laughs> right now? I don't know if you'd be either, to be honest, right now. Um, but yeah, Craig, obviously Spurs are just as bad right now. Um, we've got a few Spurs questions lined up as well. Um, we had Kian who asked us, um, will Spurs make the top four? Now, this was on for the Thursday's episode. So obviously, in hindsight, they've had that result against Leeds, lost 3-1. Um, yeah, it just seems to be real shitness going on in North London right now. Um, and I don't know which job is more attractive right now. Um, what's your thoughts on this? So before the Leeds game, I would have said yes, because I think that they're mm. behind Leicester, and Leicester are, Leicester are going to do it. They're going to do that thing that Ben Rodgers did last season, where I think they're going to, they potentially could drop it at the top four year. But that was all against Leeds, I think, probably kills that off. Who would you rather be Arsenal Spurs? I don't know. Spurs have got a nice stadium, I suppose. <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Pass. <laughs> Andy? 
I think solely on the basis that I think if you've got the opportunity to work with Harry Kane or something on, you've got a chance. <laughs> so, you know, they've got, despite all the other problems that they've got as a club, they've got two, you know, bona fide world-class players. You could, you know, on his day, Gareth Bale has his moments. Um, mm-hmm. That'll be interesting to see what they do next year with Gareth Bale. Because uh, I don't think... Um, Staying at Madrid next season is going to be a starter, even though especially if Zidane's still knocking about. So, yeah, I think Spurs marginally. Um, but again, I think, um, I don't think they, you know, if a manager's coming in expecting a massive transfer, Kitty, um, I think they'll be somewhat disappointed. And the unfortunate for Spurs, they have got a method of being able to rebuild their squad, but that's going to involve selling Harry Kane and Son. And is that necessarily what they want? Um, it's probably something best left for Spurs fans to decide, but that's the um, situation that could come up in the future. Because I personally have an inkling that, you know, if Kane has a good Euros and he comes at the back of it and goes, well, I'm not playing in like, Champions League, I'm 28. Like, mm. he might be knocking on Mr. Levy's door asking for a transfer. Mm. And great point by the Anglo-Italian pods. Arsenal and Spurs fans get more pleasure out of each other's teams rather than their own. But um, while we're on the theme of Spurs, obviously there's that huge debate around who's going to take over at Spurs. And we debated this uh, a few weeks ago in the pods. Um, we suggested a few out there suggestions. Andy, you went with Klinsman. I went with Joachim Love. Um and there seems to be a lot of knockbacks at the moment. Uh, I was reading on there in terms of potential targets right now. We've got Graham Potter, Ralph Ragnick, Marcelino, um, one for you, Craig, Paolo Fonseca, um, Nuno, Nuno Espiritu Santo. Um, but I'm going to throw out an outsider to this. We haven't spoken about him, but Rafa Benitez as well. Um, yeah, I mean, what's the thoughts from that lineup? Um, start off with yourself, Craig. It's not very inspiring, is it? I mean, listen, we all we all like Graham Potter, but if I was a Spurs fan and we went down and got the the Brighton manager who's just about to scrape clear of relegation, Roberto mm. Santo was a good coach, a coach, but I think he's probably missed his high hide mark. Paulo Fonseca, I don't know what it is about English fans. They see Portuguese guys, a good-looking guy, dressed as well, manages Roma, but his record's not very good. Um, they're going to finish seventh or eighth. Uh, this season and you know up in the big games like we've said if he can't beat Napoli's and Atalanta's um, in SRI he's not going to come and disrupt mm. the top four you've got in England now it's just not going to happen it's not not very inspiring I think probably the best one out of there you'd have to see would be Rafa Benitez I know he's been out of the game or the English game for a while but he knows the league very well um, and I think Rafa Benitez could probably get a tune out of them he's obviously a world class coach but yeah Potter um Santo, that's um, that's quite worrying, actually. <laughs> and Andy, are you still sticking with Klinsman? I mean, if it get if, if if we're still looking for a manager in four weeks' time, it might happen. <laughs> um, and I want written apologies from both of you if it does. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's funny though. Uh, Craig made an interesting point: is that if you look at the man, if you look at the so-called snazzy dressers of like Premier League man, you know, managers, you look at Fonseca, you look at Nagelsmann, you look at Arteta and Guardiola. They're all quite like quite swish-looking 
guys, you know, to present themselves <laughs> quite well. And I think that maybe that's why Oli doesn't get the credit he deserves sometimes because he just he just looks a bit like <laughs> meh. <laughs> it just looks it's like an old guy stealing next to him. Yeah, it, they basically just look like two old guys who've just got who, who are watching football on the hungover Sunday morning. Um, but, um, but no, the manager situation I think is difficult, and I think um, they are starting to realise that again they've missed their high tide mark. You know, to mm. get a top level manager in, like by appointing Mourinho, you know, when they just come back off the back of the Champions League final, um, I think they missed the charts then. Because if you, 18 months ago, when they come off back of that Champions League final, they probably could have got an Allegri or Nagelsmann or someone like that, but they've they've missed it now. Um, you know, yeah, and I think if it went for someone like Graham Potter or San, you know, Spirito Santo. They, I think they they'll be hiring on the base of a style of play rather than any success that they've bought um, or that they come with. So yeah, I think uh, Graham Potter. I think would be an interesting choice because you know he has done the hard rounds. Like he's not used mm. to work. He's used to working with limited resources. You know, especially going to Ostersons. Um, you know, he hasn't got the most. Uh, Brighton don't spend that much money themselves either, and I think he's had to be quite inventive in the transfer market. And I think that would be maybe an asset that Daniel Levy might like in the manager. Um, whereas if Santo, you've also got the um, you know the Hulk Mendes and the Portuguese links um, as well. So it's um, you know being the tight bastard Daniel Levy is, I can imagine him thinking that would be quite a good option. So what about this suggestion? So one of our listeners, the great crash homebrewer suggested Marcelo Bielsa should be approached for the Spurs job. Now, my thoughts are he's quite loyal to Leeds. I don't see it happening, but he would be fantastic for that Spurs team. Um, Craig, I know you've got some high opinions of Bielsa. Do you reckon that's likely? I wouldn't put it past Spurs, but I don't think it would work for, for this reason. It's all very well being a club like Leeds where you've just come up and you can win one, lose one, concede four goals, but as long as you win the next week, it's all good because it's all new and it's all fun and it's wacky Leeds and there's no real consequence for Leeds win one, lose one in their form. You can't do that at a big club where you're expected to actually win things and actually qualify for Europe. That won't fly. Winning two of every three games or winning one, 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 one draw, one loss what it's not enough. So this this wacky thing that Bielsa has got, this crazy flow in football, um, that's very well when it's all fun and games. But when it comes to being a serious contender, you have to have a better game plan than that. And Bielsa doesn't have a plan B. It's just we'll go out, we'll try plan A. If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, we get pumped. And I mean, I, I think Leeds are still correct me if I'm wrong. Still, have got the worst um, XG goals against. You can see more chances mm. than anyone else. I still I, I still believe that's the case. Um, and you cannot play like that if you want to genuinely start qualifying for Europe and finish in the top four in this list. So let's move to the Champions League that happened just that week ago. Um, we'll start off with the Man City and PSG results. Big result for Man City. Um, we had a question from Rob C who asked us, did PSG bottle the match versus Man City? Now, on the, you know, when you evaluate it uh, to a degree, you kind of say, yeah. Um, but I feel like 
it wasn't necessarily Pochettino's doing. It was a lot more of the players that were on that pitch that really didn't perform. The likes of Neymar didn't feel turned up potentially. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of what was claimed in the media was the fact that they just didn't have enough metal or mental attitude for that match. They kind of expected to be kind of rolling over Man City. Don't know if you guys kind of reflect the same, but yeah, what was your thoughts on that particular match? If we start off with yourself, Andy. I think, um, I don't think PSG necessarily bottled it because I think the problem PSG have playing in the division that they do is that they don't come up against, you know, top teams regularly enough. Uh, I mean, I thought they were lucky in the first leg against Bayern Munich where had Lewandowski be fit, I don't think PSG would be in the semi-finals in the first place. And the problem that PSG have had over the past, you know, since the, uh, the monies came in is that they've got, a team for the fantastic individuals, but they don't seem to have enough personalities in there. What I mean by that is that when you know the good times are going and you're in control and you're having 20, 30 shots and goal the game, everybody feels good and everybody's happy. But when you know you go behind and you're having to scrap and fight a little bit, they haven't got enough fighters in that team. And I know they've tried to address that a little bit, the likes of um you know, it was a gay and um, uh, under Herrera and sort of, put, you know, people like Thiago Silva over the years, but the likes of um, Mbappe to an extent and definitely sort of Neymar, they're not leaders who mm. will drag them through games. You know, if you look at the second leg, they got extremely petulant. Um, you, know, for, you know, Dean Rear got himself sent off for being um, petulant, which isn't a surprise, to be honest, because that's what he's like. So, and I think that's the main problem with the squad, and that's why I don't think they'll ever win the Champions League, because they, they keep, you know, Neymar's just signed a new deal, by all accounts, uh, mm. which I think is a bad move for them, because I think they should be trying to look away from personalities like Neymar, uh, who, yeah. let's be honest, is just here for the money um, and good times. Like, I don't I think I don't think he's actually there to win anything serious. So, yeah, that's um, my view on it. And, Craig, do you think we should actually give a bit more praise to Man City and the way they approached that second leg in particular? Because, I mean, Ruben Diaz, he had a fantastic game, but I know the game is kind of highlighting Phil Foden and his contribution to the match, as well as Kevin De Bruyne. Um, didn't know what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, and Riyad Mahrez, who I thought was excellent mm. on both legs. Um, yeah, I think right after that first, the first half of the first leg, you really thought, well, Man City are going to do that again. They're going to, they're going to fall up in Europe. But they came out, and then for the second half of the first leg, and then for the ninety minutes in the second leg, I just thought they were in total control. Really, so credit to Man City. I don't think PSG bottled it as such, but like Andy has highlighted, they definitely lost the head. Um, I just again the first leg just got a, um, an absolute chase, and it was frustrated and kicked out, and then. You could tell that Di Maria, Neymar, all the usual suspects, went to knew they were not or they were behind in the second leg. They just they just started kicking out and was just petulant. It was really, really disappointing. Yeah, I agree with Andy. I don't think that, that's the reason why. They, I don't think they'll win a Champions League. They just don't have it in them to mm. do that. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, credit to PS, um, credit to Man City. Sorry, Man City were fantastic. Mm. Um, and it makes a very, very interesting final. Maybe not the best football you've ever seen, but given... Chelsea have beat Man City twice in the last few weeks um, in the Cup and in the league this weekend. It makes for a very, very interesting final. 
Another good point by the Anglo-Italian pod around PSG only buying big names, no idea on how to build a squad. And I think, obviously, Craig, we reflected on your first ever appearance on the pod was around philosophies, transfer policies, and the fact that some clubs obviously do really well with that, the likes of Borussia Dortmund, for example, but then clubs like PSG, they're never going to build that kind of legacy if they don't build a team that is going to constantly dominate Europe. And, you know, I think person like Thomas Tuchel is going to be laughing at them right now because, you know, they let him go. He's gone to Chelsea and look what he's achieved. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is just typical PSG, isn't it? Yeah, as in you thought that Adrissa Gay was a, a move away from that because he's not a big name, not a shiny striker, but quite a functional midfielder who could do a job and he has been playing well, but they need more players like that and less of the just buying superstars and trying to shoehorn them into a team, whereas you know, clubs who do it really well, like Chelsea, for example. How many how many world world class players does Chelsea actually have? I don't think they've got many. Yeah. I don't think they've got many. Or how many how many mm. how many Chelsea players would fit into a world class room Madrid side or a world class PSG side? There's not many. What they do is they buy players that really, really fit. Uh, Rudiger um Canty's mm. probably the only player who's really, really world class. But they, they know yeah. how they've, they've built it and Tuchel's got them playing as a team and a structure. Um, and PSG need to kind of move away from that and buy players who are going to really do a job rather than just, you know, take the ball and try and do it all themselves. But yeah, they definitely need to move away from their superstar model, almost a sort of a Galacticos model and, and try and get a team that's built mm. to win knockout football. Do you think that's kind of highlighted by the fact that Thomas Tuchel has achieved so much at Chelsea and... To a degree, it seems like it's highlighting how Hamstrung maybe Tuchel was at PSG right now, or before. Uh, I don't know. He did a good job at PSG. You've got to remember, he won a lot of titles. Granted, mm. in France, he took them to their first um, Champions League final last year, so he did a reasonably good job there. But definitely, he'll be he'll be laughing now. Um, mm. He's gone to Chelsea and got them through, but it was a, there was a lot to do with the Tuchel sacking. It wasn't just on the field and yeah. behind him, like um, Liga, and it was it was fights with Leonardo, etc. So. Yeah. Um, I don't think PSG necessarily regret it, but I think Thomas Tuchel definitely had the last laugh. So Andy, what about that Chelsea result against Real Madrid? Because I know we've kind of been highlighted around Mason Mount and how mature he's become, but actually in that second leg, I thought it was all about Kai Havertz and what an amazing appearance in terms of how he played, how he actually, you know, he was just dynamic in the way he played it, uh, being that sole kind of lone striker to an extent, um, but also kind of dropping into midfield. Um, it seems to be that kind of similar philosophy to Guardiola. But um, yeah, I think he adds a bit more of a different dynamic, doesn't he, for Chelsea? Yeah, he absolutely does. And I think um, I think the expectation with like, a lot of big signings is that they hit the ground running straight away. Um, you know, but he is like, despite his age, he's a regular Germany international. He's played a good couple of seasons of senior football of Leverkusen. He is a very talented, very technical, very modern footballer. You know, he could drop in and out of multiple positions and link the play. You know, he, a lot of teams nowadays, if you look at especially like City side, we don't have to have like an archetypal number nine. Uh, and obviously he came into England, you know, with a shortened um with a shortened pre-season. He contracted COVID and apparently he got the more longer term effects of that so um as much as it's entertaining and gets plenty of clicks to go he's been a flop all season there's reasons for it um mm. so i think he's just sort of showing and i think the other part of it is coaching as well you know i've said a couple of times like if you look at this chelsea side now 
And look at that Chelsea side just before Lampard got sacked. It's almost a completely different side altogether. Yeah, it's exactly the same footballers. Um, no, when I was listening to the pod when I was absent last week, and I think Timo Werner's another one that he, yeah. if you look at his movement, you look at the runs he's making. Um, all right, he got the goal. You know, he is still missing a hat for the chances, but I think next season he could really push on. Uh, you could argue he needs to to an extent, but um, no, I thought Chelsea like they delivered the kind of performance that PSG are incapable of doing. You know, they mm. got stuck in. Um, you know, they shit housed it a little bit. Um, you know, if you look at the lead up to the Mason Mount goal, you know, late on in the game you've got Kante charging around like an absolute madman to take the ball off and lay it off um you know to have that amount of energy and that amount of desire um you know i put them as my dark horses to win it and i think mm. um, i mean maybe part of it's hoping uh, <laughs> that they um hopefully they'll uh, do the job over man city uh literally over the past week i've gone all right come on psg I hate myself for it i said all right okay come on Real madrid <laughs> didn't mind that so much and now i'm like oh right then come on chelsea (laughs) (laughs) and uh craig get your thoughts on kai havertz because uh whoscored.com um shared a tweet during that match saying kai havertz had more shots that hit the crossbar than the shots that actually hit the target um goes to show you what kind of season he's having this year I'm really, really pleased that he's starting to come into form and starting to show the player that we thought he was. I, I've seen firsthand how good he was. He, he played against Rangers last season in the Europa League for Leverkusen, and he just gave us an absolute chasing over, over two legs. And it's the kind of mm. player you watch and go, yeah, you're going to go and play for a big club very, very soon. So when he came to Chelsea, I was really excited to watch him in the Premier League uh, for the reasons that Andy's outlined. He's had quite a, quite a tough first year. Mm. I think you, you can't underestimate how difficult it must be for, for young foreign players to, to come to a country, not be able to go for a meal mm. with your new teammates, go for a drink, have each other around, all the kind of things that teams would usually do to socialise and build that bond, they don't really have that. So it's, it's not a surprise it's taken some time, but I'm, I'm glad that he's finally getting a bit of recognition and I think he will certainly push on next year, as will Timo Werner. And Timo Werner is, I think, benefiting from the fact that Thomas Tuchel said to him, you're, you're going to play every week, um, you're my number one striker, um, and just giving him a run of games and almost letting him play himself into form and... I'd be a lot more worried if he was not getting into the positions to score. I'd be a lot more worried if he was nowhere near it. But the fact that he's getting into those positions, uh, I think the next season with a proper pieces under his belt, um, I think he could come good as well. And Chelsea looking at a very, very good partnership up top. So interestingly, yesterday we had almost what was a dress rehearsal for the final uh, with the B squad, so to speak. Um, but yeah, it was a really entertaining game. I don't know what you guys thought. Um, if Timo Werner could actually stay on side for once, he might have scored a lot, hell of a lot more goals. Um, but a few things kind of highlighted to me. Um, why does Guardiola persist with not really going with a sort of centre forward for these kind of games? He kind of persistently seems to go for attacking midfielders. I know he had Aguero on the pitch, but yeah, it's kind of evident that he doesn't really trust him. Um, but also, I think, I don't know what you guys think about this, but Reese James had a fantastic match. I thought actually he made his claim for that right back position in the England squad really evident and I thought he was really strong um, but overall if we start off with yourself Andy um, what was your thoughts all about that game and more importantly was there any points that you think we could learn um, I think sorry two sucks internet yeah I think um, it was good dress rehearsal wasn't it but yeah I think um, 
I don't think we've learned too much. You know, two core sides are nowadays very well organised. Um, you know, they protect the line well. Defend, they could defend deep when we need to. Um, and if they can cope with you know that kind of level of attack, then um, it does bode well for them going forwards. And what about you, Craig? Obviously, we saw Marcus Alonso on the other side do really well um, and like non-stop being a form down that left-hand side. Um, but it seems to be like Tuchel had a game plan against Guardiola. And I don't know whether Guardiola is going to start rethinking how he approaches that final because maybe you learn a lot about that squad in this particular match. Yeah, I saw best of the game I was in and out um, yesterday afternoon, but it was almost like they played kind of the B teams so as not to psychologically affect the A teams going to the final because if both of the A teams had played at their best, you know, top strength, and one of them had got a hide in, it might have affected them for the final. So, yeah, very, very interesting. I think I probably trust Thomas Tuchel more than any other manager against Guardiola to think of a game plan and maybe do that. It has to be maybe creeping into Guardiola's head or maybe the Man City players. That that's two two games in what, two weeks now. Beat them in the cup uh, semi-final. Mm. Uh, then beat them again yesterday. Uh, and it definitely feels like Thomas Tuchel probably more than anyone else. Um, maybe Ollie. Ollie's got a good record against Pep. Um, but definitely sees sees what Pep's doing and has a has a, a good plan for it. And you know they're, they're absolutely solid at the back. I think it's what eighteen clean sheets in twenty five games he's got. Some ridiculous record took him since he came came into the big job. So yeah, very interesting. Like I said, I don't think the final will be a classic. I think it could quite mm. a lot of quite a lot of boring football. But it'll be very very interesting to see how both teams line up. I think the problem with City is that they do struggle against a quick counter attack. Um, because you know, it's part of the reason why Oli's got a good such such a good record against Barcelona is sorry, uh, Guardiola. Um, get my toes mixed up there, I haven't been <laughs> drinking yet. Uh, the reason why he's got a good um, good record against uh, Guardiola is because a lot of the time they'll sit back, and if you can get the likes of, I mean, Ruben Diaz has been absolutely brilliant. Uh, and has added a quite a bit of quality, but at the same time, it's um, Carl Walker probably sends himself a little bit too far up the pitch sometimes, and as does uh, Cancelo or Mendy. Uh, so they do leave themselves exposed. Um, I think you can sort of get at them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking through to the Champions League final as well is that uh, be interesting, especially in Europe, with the kind of referees that they have there, is that whether Fernandinho will be able to get away with um, a lot of what he does, because he does do a lot of um, tactical fouls, uh, which, you know, on the one hand, is a really good strategy, breaks up the play, allows you to reset. But um, you could argue from the opposite side that you should really be getting yellow cards for those at some point. <laughs> and he mm-hmm. does seem to not get as many cards as he should do. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Guardiola sides, as much as good as the football they play and as good as the squad they have, they're not invincible. Um, yeah. I think it's how it's how you work out a plan to get at them. Uh, the other part of it as well is pressing um, City. Not many teams do it. I remember Wolves doing it last season a little bit. Uh, United did it quite well in the second game we played against them this season. If you can, if you've got the energy. Uh, which you should do with the likes of Timo Werner and Mount, is um, really attack them. I think the risk is is that if you don't have anything to show for that pressing, eventually the likes of uh, Foden and De Bruyne will start passing around you. Um, and that's the balancing act you've got to have. 
Mm. So if we just do a rundown of the Premier League results that happened this weekend. So we'll start off with Friday's result, shock result to an extent, Leicester losing 4-2 to Newcastle. And um, I kind of went in and out of that particular match, but boy, did uh, Leicester get a whipping there. So um, yeah, we won't dwell on that too much. Sheffield United lost 2-0 to Palace. Liverpool beat their feeder club Southampton 2-0. And then we had today's results, which we have so far Wolves beating Brighton 2-1. Uh, we'll reflect on your team, Andy, in a minute. So you guys beating Villa 3-1. Uh, West Ham losing 1-0, surprisingly at home at, against Everton. And as it currently stands, for Rory's benefit from the Anglo-Italian pod, Arsenal are still winning 2-1 with about eight minutes to go. So, um, yeah, Andy, around that Man United result, uh, good win. Uh, kind of uh, delaying Man City's chance of winning this Premier League. But... I thought it was uh, actually a really entertaining match in particular, given Troy's goal as well at the beginning. Um, but yeah, um, masterclass from Cavani again. Yeah, it was um, a typical Manchester United performance. You know how it is. Like, they don't start playing until they go 1-0 down. And I'm at the point where I've made peace of that. <laughs> I know at some point during the game, there's going to be a little bit of a defensive fuck-up. We're going to concede a goal. And you know what? I've stopped being mad about it. I just, I'm at the point now where I know it's going to happen. And, I know, and now I've got, compared to, say, a year ago, I've got faith that we'll come back and we'll still score a couple of goals. Um, so, yeah, I think um, Lindelof had a bit of a shocker. Um, yeah. he is he is prone to the odd one. I mean, he's generally speaking been all right this season, but mm-hmm. you know, for uh, Traore's goal, which was fantastic finish, but uh, in the split second before Lindelof had an opportunity to clear it, um, and he didn't, so that wasn't ideal. Um, so yeah, so they gave him a bit, and um, there's a lot of giving the ball away. Um, again, I think. Um, Fred and McTominay are never usually the best, I don't think, are the best combination. Um, I know it's more defensively solid while rather than anything creative, uh, but they did get um, caught in possession quite a few times. And Fred, it happens to week in, week out. If you go back to the Roma game, he was tr- he remembered he was Brazilian for a split second, tried doing a little fancy flick and then gave the ball away and Pellegrini scored. Uh, so that was that. Um but yeah, it was uh, the second half really good. I think Pogba um, has shown the most consistent run of form I've seen from him for a good few years. Uh, he's been playing in on the left. And he's been given the flexibility to come inside. Um, I mean, he's a big, strong lad. And when he's actually really work, you know, what you say now, he's working hard. He's getting up and down the pitch. He's holding people off. He's doing some of the shitty stuff that you kind of felt he didn't have the appetite to do or wasn't showing previously. Um, so that, you know, that has added another dimension to it as well. And I think he, 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 you know, the penalty where Louise went straight into the back of him was just absolutely brainless. Um, so, but yeah, and then Cavani making a difference, obviously, um, at the end, where if you look at the kind of movement he made, like it's literally one of those that like, you sit a little kid down and go, that's how you move as a striker. Uh, mm. The way he was just stood on, he stood wide, just drifted in, you know, didn't even have to play the line, the offside line. He just drifted in in front of his man and just nodded it and nodded it in. And you don't, you didn't see the likes of um, 
you know, Marshall doing that last year. Um, I thought Greenwood was good again. I think he's making mm-hmm. potentially a late charge to the Euro squad. He had a lot of um, mm-hmm. difficult uh, times earlier in the season with the Iceland stuff and then some personal stuff he had um, earlier in the season. But if you look at that finish where he turned Tyrone Minks um, and then slotted it in, I think, uh, yeah, it's very promising. And I think given... I think United will drop points in the next week, given the uh, now very awkward run of games that we've uh, got. Uh, so, yeah, it was a um, good day at the office. And I think looking at uh, mm-hmm. Peter's um, comments, hi, Peter, hope you're well. Um, I think it's quite refreshing um, not to be disappointed watching Newcastle. Um, they did they did actually play really, really well. Um, I think probably more of a anomaly more than anything else but uh, I think uh, say Maximan um, and Callum mm-hmm. Wilson I think having them both on the pitch at the same time is absolutely vital to them um, and Joe Willock has added a lot of um, bit of dynamism to the midfield as well and added a few goals as well and I think that's ultimately mm-hmm. what's got them away from relega- relegation trouble um, you know what happens in the future is anybody's guess but it's um, if you take that game for what it was I think I'd agree it's definitely the best Newcastle performance, one of the best Newcastle performances under Bruce, especially away from home. Yeah. And I think they've probably come at the right time for Newcastle, um, just purely because a few weeks back on the pod, we kind of reflected that they're probably on the verge of kind of going into that relegation zone and we didn't feel confident about their chances. But St. Maxima's performance has been vital for them, um, as has Wilson's goals, to be fair. But yeah, as you say, Willock's goals have been really important for them right now as well. Um, Do you think if they can build on that, I suppose, squad... Do you reckon they'll have a better season next year? Well, they'll end up selling their best players as they always do because my cash yeah. wants a bit of money. Like, let's because that's what that's what will happen. If some if someone mm. some club goes, you know what, here's thirty million pounds for Saint Maximan, or here's twenty million pounds for Callum Wilson, despite his injury problems, my cash is going to take it. Um, and then yeah. what they'll try and do is that they'll buy somebody for a third of a value and hope that works out. Um, and that's kind of the way that they work. So I know it's probably not the best thing to hear, but I don't expect that they'll have the level of ambition in the club itself and the recruitment and the backing to actually go and make a push. I think if they're a manager with any degree of ambition, Newcastle should be a mid-table top half Premier League club year in, year out. But because um, football... Winning football matches is not the highest priority. Um, I don't think they will. Craig, what about fourth place? I mean, at the moment, it looks like it's between Leicester and West Ham. Um, I think it's a bit disappointing that West Ham lost that match today um, because I think they would have put some severe pressure on to Leicester. Um, but I know Leicester have still got some really hard games coming up in terms of fixtures. Um, they've got Chelsea, for example, in the FA Cup as well as playing them in the league. I think it's that Tuesday coming after the final. Um, so, yeah, where, where do you think this is going to play out in terms of who's going to finish fourth right now? Before this weekend, um, I would have said that Leicester would probably drop out um, and we'd get some, we'd either have a, a West Ham or maybe even a Spurs or Liverpool up there. Um, but that Spurs result at Leeds and the West Ham result today um, probably keeps 
probably keeps Leicester in there. I think Liverpool are the only club that can come close to win their game in hand and they're three points behind. It's not out with the possibility that Liverpool can sneak in there and, and beat it. But Brendan Rodgers needs needs this. He's probably he's been now touted for, for jobs at bigger clubs now. Um and Brendan Rodgers has to really finish top four after the kind of the clusterfuck at the back end of last year where they dropped out from the seemingly impossible position mm-hmm. to drop out. So he needs this and the pressure will definitely be on based on the scars of last year. Um but results this weekend, even though they lost themselves, I think as soon as he lost on Friday, I thought, right, this is it. There's some couples going to come through here. But then the other competitors lost as well. So Leicester can probably look at this weekend. There's no harm done, really, in terms of top four. As long as they get back on it, they should be okay. Mm. Let's move on to the Man United protest that happens last weekend. So, Andy, I joked about your involvement on this protest, but uh, we did have a serious question on this topic, which was from Stephen Cole who asked us, do we think Man United fans storming Old Trafford and what do we think this could lead in terms of reform in the future or do we think it's too little too late even? Um, I know in the week we had Joel Glazer's letter to the fans um, kind of summarising that he's behind the club, he's going to support them ever more, he's going to get fan representation, he completely backs the FA's kind of thinking on this and welcomes the FA's independent review on the situation. Sounds like a load of bullshit to me. Um, but yeah, um, what was your thoughts on the whole debacle? And uh, more importantly, do you think we're going to see kind of resurgences in terms of protests from other clubs as well? So I think um, going going to the protest itself, the actual pl- protest itself was planned a couple of weeks in advance or a week or so in advance. So there's always going to be a protest at the Liverpool game. Uh, you know, this wasn't just something that randomly happened in the day. It wasn't just a random mob. Uh, the general plan, certainly from what I was looking at on Twitter, because I do follow an awful lot of Man United fans on Twitter, uh, ones that are part of supporters group and regular season ticket goers, is that, they're, yeah, there's a plan for a protest, um, but then I think it escalated a little bit. So there was also a, a protest, which I believe was planned outside the Lowry Hotel where the players were staying. Um, the general point was just to make themselves heard, um, you know, because Manchester United, uh, and I've seen some absolutely horrendous takes on the situation from the likes of Simon Jordan and Richie Keys mm. and um, just Graham Sooners. The collection of dinosaurs, basically. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, they should be extinct at this point, to be honest. Uh, but um, bitching aside, um, yeah, it was a planned protest. Unfortunately, what had happened is that um, a few fans, uh, well, a couple of hundred fans, had um, sort of escalated it further by going out onto the pitch. Um, I mean, started, you know, for example, there are people chucking cameras about, which are used for the broadcasting and sort of throwing stuff around. And um, I don't, you know, that I don't condone that part of it because I think as soon as you start um, getting violent and causing damage to property, you know, um, it's um, it does um, kind of diffuse on the point because then especially all the the tabloids start focusing or look at these people rioting when they should be focusing on what the actual message was which is to get the glazers out 
But you look at the end result of all of that. Now, let's, you know, me included, millions upon people, not just in the UK, but around the world, would have been sitting there waiting to watch Manchester United versus Liverpool. Because in terms of um, popularity, in terms of supporter base, they are both the biggest clubs in England. Um, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, so that would have got worldwide, you know, those images would have been going to cameras all over the world. Um, you know, they, they stopped the players' coaches from leaving because obviously there was a security risk uh, at the Lowry Hotel. Um, and in the end, um, after a short delay, I think it was just decided that because of a few corner flags, and apparently one of the reasons they couldn't play the game was because they didn't have enough footballs. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't have enough footballs at a football ground to play football. Uh, certainly not the correct Brilliant. footballs. Anyway, uh, we didn't have a corner flag, so... So, um, yeah, uh, but it's not, If it, it turns to the reason for the protest. It, this isn't just a protest mm. about the Super League. Granted, that's ignited the protest. United um, have had issues with the Glazers since it took over 16 years ago. And I think mm. one thing I will address is that the horrendous take that I see from a lot of people goes, oh, Man United fans are just pissed because they're not, they're not winning stuff anymore. Um, and that's not the reason for the protests. I mean, don't get me wrong, on the pitch, we have been disappointed with what's going on, but what we're disappointed with is the fact that Old Trafford's not had any sort of fix-up for the, um, since the Glazers there. I mean, apart from cosmetic, you know, expensive lick on paint, I think one of their supporters, Trust members, called it. Um, they've not had anything done to the ground, so where it's, you know, the best ground in the country at the start of a millennium, it's now probably third, fourth or fifth. Um, you know, the training facilities aren't what they aren't the world class facilities they used to be. Um, and with Manchester United, they should be striving to be at their best on every single area of the pitch. Uh, that goes down to, you know, the players that you bring in, the recruitment staff. And that just hasn't been the case. It's just been years and years of sort of managed decline, really. Um, you know, Edward has been a big symbol of that. Um, and the other main issue is that, you know, as much as United has spent a billion pounds, because that's what people, everyone keeps saying at the moment, well, United has spent almost as much as City and spent it badly, which, you know what, they have in quite a lot of cases spent it badly, but that doesn't tell the whole story. You know, um, if you look at the seasons where Manchester United finished outside the top four, that's when they've made the investment, not be- just to get back into the top four and get the revenue back for it. So if you think when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took charge, um, took his first full season in charge, he was given one Bazaka, first team ready player, you know, Harry Maguire, and then Bruno Fernandes came in later in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, they got, bonafide first-choice starters to get themselves back into the Champions League. They get the Champions League, and what do we get this season? Two right-wingers who are two or three years ready from being regular 13 Manchester United players, if they get that far. You've got a, um, you know, an ageing centre-forward who, don't get me wrong, has turned out to be a great success, but not many people are thinking it at the time. And they back up left-back. Are you telling me, I don't believe for one minute, are they going to Solskjaer walks into um, Woodward's office and goes, that's what I want for the summer. That's what will get me closer um, to, yeah. you know, to finishing. Um, so, yeah. It, it, and that's part of where the issue comes from is that every time we're in a position where we think, you know what, if we can get 
two or three big signings we could really push on as a club. They failed to do it and they've done that year in, year out. The other problem is, is that they, you know, we don't, Manchester United do not need a sugar daddy. They don't need somebody to come in and pump billions and billions of pounds into the club because they generate the money for themselves. As a commercial enterprise, Manchester United are one of the most successful brands in the mm. world. And, and the fact that we still spend a billion pounds in transfers over the past 10 years is testament to what that club produces in revenue. But the fact is that one billion pounds, in fact, some are estimating it is near the two billion mark, has gone out of the club in terms of debt repayments, dividends and loan repayments, you know, all going into the Glazers or Bankers' property is all going out of the club. Now, if you yeah. gave that one million pound, one billion pound back and put that into the club, you know, that could pay for maintenance on the ground. That could pay for, you know, two or three top class signings per year. Um, so, and I think it's made a difference because we'll refer to the, the letter that Joel Glazer has said. Now, Joel Glazer is a man of very, very minimal communication. Um, in fact, we've heard more out of Joel Glazer in the past two weeks via a statement than we have done the previous 16 years. So that in itself shows that the, the protests have made an impact. And I guess it's all sort of really good sort of sound, sound bites, really. You know, he's whoever wrote it with him or for him has obviously tried to show a degree of empathy. Um, you know, they said a couple of weeks ago when the Super League was sort of uh, sacked off, they were going to try and communicate more with the fans. Now, there was a fans forum a couple of weeks, about a week or so ago, which they failed to attend. So that was their first opportunity to make amends. But apparently that's going to be an end of season thing now. Um, it's going to be a Zoom meeting at the end of the season with supporters trusts. Um, that'll be interesting to see if that goes ahead. Um, you know, the other part of it is that they do see the idea of did you see the benefit of allowing fans to be shareholders in the club but for example if you buy a share in manchester united at the moment they only get one tenth of the voting rights as a as the equivalent share would be for the glazers so really you're just paying for the uh the vibes of you know owning a little bit of manchester united as opposed to having any collective power with it um so, yeah, I think there's a lot of good soundbites. But for me, it's like they're saying, Joel Glazer is saying, right, we want to invest in the stadium. We want to invest in the facilities. But not only do we want to do that, we want to invest in um, the, you know, the playing squad as well. Now, mm. Manchester United are three, four, they need three or four first choice players. And I'm not talking play squad players. You're talking players that replace McTominay and Fred in the lineup and improve the quality, you know, replace Lindelof mm -hmm. or buy a centre-back. You know, real top quality players. Um, I, I don't see where the money for that is coming from because... They're struggling to make profits at the moment because of the coronavirus. Mm. You know, Manchester United normally turn over a good couple of million pounds uh, per home game. You've got the broadcast revenues, which have had to pay a little bit back because of corona. You've got, um, you know, with the revenue cuts that there have been because of obviously the coronavirus, and there's no guarantee full crowds are going to be allowed back into football grounds come August and September. Um, 
I'm not sure where the money is going to come from. So the only logical way that I think the Glazers could raise the money to fulfill the promises that they have made is by raising the share issue. So hypothetically, you go, right, we're going to put 20, we're going to give away another 20% of our equity within the club and raise that um, with the money that is raised as a result of doing that, pay off the club debts because that will give United an extra £80 million liquidity to to work with each year mm-hmm. um, and allow or allow the squad to be invested in a much better way than it is at the moment. And I don't think they're going to do that. So I think the thoughts on many United fans is, um, I'm sorry I've gone on a little bit here. Um, <laughs> the thoughts of many United fans, you want to see action uh, mm-hmm. rather than words. And I think, you know, it's um I'm personally I'm still of the view that the Glazers just need to get shot off the club. Just raise the whole club in the stock market and then see, that'll work itself out basically. Um but yeah, I think um they're gonna have to do something very spectacular to even begin to build a relationship with a fan base. Um but I don't know what you guys think, but I see that very unlikely to happen and the other part of it as well as came through over the weekend is that um they've lost a 200 million pound sponsorship deal um i think where was the what was the company called there is i'll just search you for it now so it's called the the hot group so they had a 200 million pound training kit deal over which was to be spread over the next over 10 years so that's um you know 20 million pound a year that uh that's been cancelled because they're a manchester-based company and they're worried about uh the impact that the uh fans boycott will have and if you look at trust pilot ratings for united's uh new sponsor mm-hmm. next year which is team viewer um it's i think what we're seeing is the fans are making an impact and they are making themselves heard and you know what maybe the dinosaurs of the footballing world don't like it um yeah. and they don't and you get some people who don't see particularly what's wrong uh what we're complaining about but it is making a difference mm. craig i was gonna kind of allude to the reform aspect because we saw a lot of rumored kind of conversations between the fa and uefa in midweek but i'm more concerned about the fact that the likes of real madrid barcelona and juventus are still part of that super league they haven't kind of said they're out of it at at this moment in time i know florentino perez has kind of adamantly said this is still going to happen regardless um and yeah i don't see what what else they can do right now but i think they're just waiting for the waters to kind of you know just ends before they start the idea again and floating it with maybe potentially other clubs that haven't been involved in this first kind of process. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, they could do, but other than the first wave, I mean, how many super, super clubs are, are left in Europe and how many of those super clubs would be deemed worthy by Agnelli and um, Perez to join that? So without, without I think without the, the four or five, uh, I'm not counting Spurs, by the way, Without the four or five <laughs> English clubs, um, and without the two Milan clubs, there, there is no Super League. It's not. It's mm-hmm. not a Super League. So uh, you're not going to get a German club in it. Um, I've seen that the other, the other nine clubs have sort of renounced their their participation. Have been given suspended fines. Uh, I think UEFA almost had to give a deadline to these clubs that says there are Champions League starts um, at whatever date the group stages. You have until this date before that to. Renounce the Super League, 
or you will have a ban of five years from European competition, as an example. Uh, and the Super League without these big clubs is not an goer. So clubs like Barcelona and Real Madrid cannot afford to not be in some form of European competition. So if you're for confident that the Super League is not going to happen, threaten them with a suspension from the Champions League and they'll soon, they'll soon turn the tide and they'll soon back out. Um, but yeah, I, I, if, if it's not the, if the English clubs are not in it and the two Milan clubs aren't in it, there's no Super League. It's not going to happen. And what do you think about the uh, fan storming Old Trafford? I mean, I know Arsenal kind of had a similar sort of protests outside the ground. Um, but do you think those kind of protests are isolated to the clubs that maybe we can maybe kind of associate a bit of a fraction? I know Liverpool fans have kind of sort of disdain around their ownership right now, but they're not on the same levels maybe, say, Man United and Arsenal. I don't know if I'm talking hypothetically here, but I know, obviously, Chelsea also shown their kind of discontent around the initial kind of integration of the Super League. So do you feel those protests are maybe only isolated to the clubs that we kind of saw fraction happening beforehand? Yeah, I think the reason that you know Chelsea and Liverpool protested, you know, peacefully, if I could call it that, because... They very, very recently have had good relationships with their owners. Um, the, the, the guys at Liverpool have brought enormous success to that club. Abramovich has obviously done the same with Chelsea. But the problem with the Cronkies and the Glazers is that it's been going on for a long, long time. And it was almost like there's been a sort of an, an undercurrent of discontent there for well over a decade. And the European Super League has almost been a bit of a lightning bolt to really galvanise these fans and say, no, this is this is it now. This is really the one. And you know, Andy can speak on with far greater authority than I about Manchester United, but I think the fans are well within the rights to protest. I, I didn't really have a problem with trying to get the game suspended. It's it's absolutely the biggest game in English football. It's probably the only real derby left in the top flight, to be honest. So it was the right game. The problem with what happened in the end is that the kind of the aim of a protest is to get people who are not at the protest on your side, hearts and minds, get people, my United fans at home, people at home thinking, yeah, they've got a point. And when you start to, you know, throw things around, steal stuff trash cameras, um, two police officers injured, and when that's what the tabloids grab. Those, those are the headlines, that's what sells the papers in. People start to look at the protest in a very, very different light than they would have been if it was just a, a, you know, a quote-unquote peaceful protest. So um, mm. maybe some of the, the, kind of, the elements of that, that group maybe just sort of this um, sort of ruined it a little bit for the, the, the core minded fans, but um, still good good way to make yourselves heard, really, because it is the biggest game. Like they said, there have been fans around the world sitting down on Sunday um, to watch that game. So, you know, well within the rights, um, but you can see that why my United and Arsenal, the protests have been far more severe than they would have been at other clubs. But I don't, I don't know, man, I'll ask Andy as well about who who do you want to come in? Because, I mean, I heard the Glazers are they're valuing the club at between three and five billion. Um, and there can only be a handful of people that can really afford a club like that to buy them out, right? And the chances are they'll be bastards as well. Like there's no real, <laughs> there's no real kind-hearted Samaritans that are going to just blow three million quid. So the only people that can buy um, a club like Manchester United, not almost a victim of their own success, they are the probably the biggest club in the world. Um, they are probably the most expensive club in the world. And with that comes there's only a couple of guys. You probably if you're looking at someone to buy Man United outright, it's going to be a state, and then that's what you don't really want to go down either. I think with that, I mean, we'll get to Peter's question in a second. Um, mm. I think with that is United don't need a an owner as such. I think they should just do what they did 
you know, back when United were originally listed in the stock market is you have a couple of um, shareholders, you have like a bigger share, but it doesn't, it's not a club that needs to be owned by one person because Manchester United is a self-sufficient club. It doesn't, we don't need a Saudi prince um, or, you know, somebody else in the Gulf states to come in and, to shower billions of pounds everywhere is not what's needed. Um, you know, the best solution for the Glazers is to go, right, let's float the club on the stock market. You know, those members, uh, the members you, you purchase share, vote on an executive board, an executive thing. And fight, you know, you will have the other side where dividends are going to have to be paid out because, uh, you know, investors want money back. But, you know, paying a few paying a few million pounds of dividends every year is a lot different to the situation at the moment. And that would be the most sensible, logical way around it because the Glazers, because there's so many passionate supporters of Manchester United, you know, as well as businessmen you want to uh, and women you want to invest, um, floating up on the stock market would be the best way to go because uh, you're going to get people who have slightly more money than other people and therefore will have a larger holding but they don't have to buy 100% of a club to be able to have a strong influence. You know, for example, if a Manchester United supporters trust when and then they had this idea back uh, ten years ago with like the Red Knights is basically just to have like uh, put all the supporters' money, if you like, into one pool and use that to buy a very sizable stake in the club. Uh, that for me would be the logical way because um, again, as Craig said, I don't see an individual paying the kind of money that is needed um, mm. to buy it. Um, and the Glazers did say in their statement that they are open to the idea of fans having a stake in the club. So a really good way of following that through is to maybe, right, let's release another 25% equity. They're still in charge. They've still got the majority share, but um, it, it shows that there might be some way to progress on their promise. So we'll go to Peter's question, which is, do we think coronavirus is going to affect clubs' bank balances in terms of being able to spend on players, as uh, he doesn't think there'll be many records broken, this kind of transfer window coming up, and uh, fewer transfers taking place? Um, Craig, I don't know what your thoughts are, but potentially you might even see something like swap deals between clubs where they swap players without a fee being involved, potentially. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, no, Peter's absolutely right. There'll be more swap deals, there'll be more loans. Um, there won't be many transfers. Um, there certainly won't be many big transfers. I think there's probably half a dozen players who might break that mould. For example, if Haaland goes, if Mbappe goes, uh, if Harry Kane goes, they're probably the only real top-tier mm. players that might go this summer. You might see a £100 million transfer fee. Um, Jaden Sancho, again, I think with Dortmund wanted about 120, 130 last year. They've already committed to yeah. 70. That's a really good example of where clubs are now. Um, so yeah, you, uh, yeah, Peter's right. You will not, you won't see the the silly money transfers this summer. Absolutely not. What about you, Andy? I know a lot of it has been aimed at Man United potentially spending this kind of big money. But as you've alluded to, don't know where that money's going to come from right now because we saw the Swiss ramble in terms of his tweets and around sort of the balance sheets for Man United. And um, yeah, the revenue is being affected by coronavirus. So I doubt you're going to see much in terms of big wages, big spends happening this summer. Um, but do you see potentially players being involved in swap deals potentially here? I think clubs are going to have to be a little bit smarter. Um, I do find it funny, like you get a lot of these 
football fan accounts, if you like, and people to go, oh, all United need to do is go and sign Declan Rice <laughs> for 100 million quid, go and sign Harry Kane, it's another 100 million quid, go and sign Jada Sanchez, only 70 million quid. That should be an absolute no brainer. You <laughs> sat there thinking, wait a second, <laughs> like, where's that, you know, where is this mystical money coming from? Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's, um, I think, you know, um, clubs that haven't been particularly smart at recruitment like United are going to have to go right what about loan to buy deals I mean, if you think about how PSG mm. managed to get Neymar and Mbappe in the same season they went right we'll pay for Mbappe ne- pay for Neymar now and we'll do a loan to buy for um, Mbappe and it worked yeah. a treat um, and I don't, you know, you see Bayern Munich do it. I mean, they don't usually Bayern Munich take a player on loan for a couple of years and send them back from where they came without <laughs> actually paying the money or uh, pick them up on a free. But they've done the same, for like, you know, Perisic over the years. I think they did it with Coma before he joined permanently. Um, and English clubs don't do it so much. Uh, but yeah, I think what is wrong with going to. Dortmund and going right you know how about you take Kanti Marshall off our hands maybe wishful thinking um, <laughs> I go you know we'll take Jadon Sancho or we'll pay you a fee now to take him on loan and pay for him in the summer I think yeah a lot of clubs will have to be take more inventive routes mm. to get the sort of players that they want um, I think there's still been I think if you look at Chelsea what we did last season um, maybe they're still in a position to spend a large portion of money but yeah I don't see any record breaking deals I think the biggest sort of transfer fee might be the 60-70 million quid and you know that might be the sort of Jada Sancho kind of size deal that might happen mm-hmm. but you're not going to see a genuine world class star moving from one club to another for record fee I just don't see that happening and I don't know if the Anglo-Italian boys are still watching us right now, but I seem to remember back in my younger days, we used to see Italian clubs kind of have dual ownership of players and sometimes they would loan players for a two-year period. Uh, we saw that with the likes of Pirlo, for example, and that kind of blossomed into the player that he was later down in terms of his career. Um, Craig, do you reckon we'll see more loans happening this window? Yeah, we definitely will, and it'll be it'll be loans or loans to buy. So Andy's made a good point. It'll be we really want this player in. Let's agree a loan deal, but we'll buy him next summer when clubs will in their budget cook in a year's worth of of home home game revenue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, clubs will probably bank on the fact that fans will return, and they will see that their financial position in twenty twenty two will be better. So there's probably going to be a lot of let's have them now. We promise to buy him next year. I think we're definitely going to see a lot of that this summer. And reflecting on your own club, Craig, Rangers did a lot of their business, what what I think anyway, seemingly their summer business in a January transfer window. So you bought in a few players from that were going to go out of contract, for example, in the summer. So the likes of Jack Simpson from Bournemouth, for example, Namdi or Fabor. I suspect there might be a few more that might come in the sort of summer period, dependent on who might move out of Rangers. I don't know if you reflect on the same kind of wavelength, but certainly it seems like clubs like Rangers are starting to look at the future a lot more earlier. Do you think clubs maybe need to be a bit more savvy in that sense as well? No, definitely. And you're right to point at Rangers. We've done a lot of our business already and it's been sensible business. Guys on freeze, we signed a young striker. Um, guy, his first name's Fashion, uh, which is worth signing them just for the name alone, uh, really, <laughs> yeah. uh, from Belgium. But we won't be making any big signs this summer. 
and left for a start to go out. So we've spoken on the pod about some of our players who, if they have a good Euros, will probably be gone. So we start selling players like that. Morelos is still here. I can imagine he'll be gone this summer. So if we start to sell players like that, then we'll get in replacements. But Rangers, um, like Celtic have been recently, are a club that run at a loss and the way that they make money is by selling one big player every summer. So last summer for Celtic it was Tierney, before that it was Dembele. And Rangers at the moment, they lose money at the moment. What the plan will be is to get us competitive on the pitch, have saleable assets, and then every summer we will sell one player to bridge the gap between the budget. So this summer it might be a Morelos or a Ryan Kent or Yanis Hadji. Um, and we'll only really bring in players to replace. And that's going to be the model going forward. Gone are the mid-90s days where Rangers used to go out and just, just buy players and not have to sell anyone. I mean, that's just not where Rangers are now. It's not where Scottish football is at the moment. Um, so, yeah, that's what Rangers will be doing. Clubs will have to do the same. I think the days of, you know, last-minute transfer, deadline day, silly transfer, mm-hmm. I think that's probably gone now, particularly in this COVID times. And clubs are going to have to get a little bit smarter with the recruitment and try and get better deals rather than panic buying towards the end of the window. I think we'll move on to the championship. And I wanted to reflect on the potential clubs that will be coming up from the playoff mix. Um, So we've already seen Norwich crowned as champions on Saturday against Barnsley. We also saw Watford come back up, bounce straight back up. But in that mix, we've got Bournemouth, Brentford, Barnsley and Swansea. Um, obviously, me and Craig know a few Brentford friends right now. Um, but also, um, Craig, you used to come from Barnsley as well. You lived there for a period of time. They've done really well this season in particular. Um, I don't know about you, but I actually fancy them as the outsiders to potentially, you know, go to the final and uh, potentially do it. But um, as one of my Brentford friends said, uh, it's 10th time lucky potentially for them. So we'll see. Um, what was your thoughts? What, what do you, who do you think will go up in that playoff mix? I would, I would like Brentford to come up because I think Brentford do play good football. And I was disappointed mm. when they didn't get up last year because essentially they shut the bed, really, didn't they? Last year. <laughs> so I would like to see Brentford coming up. I think they play good football. I really like it there. Uh, I'd love to see Ivan Tony um, up there um, mm. playing the Premier League. But Barnsley are dark horses. They're, they're, they're playing really well. I don't know where they've come from. Um, it's quite a big football town up there. Lovely people. I've been down to the Oakwell a couple of times and I lived there. So I'd love to see them in the Premier League as well. I'd, I would fear for Barnsley coming up in the Premier League. Though. I think it's one of the clubs that they would have to seriously do some spending. Otherwise, it could get embarrassing next year because they've not got a Premier League squad. Um, but for me, I'd like to see Brentford coming up just for the style of football they play. They've got a really good setup, a nice family club. Um, but yeah, I'd like to see them coming up. What about yourself, Adam? And you, Barnsley, or who do you think? I've got a funny feeling Barnsley would do it. Um, I don't know why, but I just have this feeling that they've got the momentum. Um, I, I think what you've just said kind of replicates what, what a lot of Wickham fans kind of had or heard this season around us being like dicked on every week and, you know, us not being able to stay up. Um, we didn't do too badly to kind of extend it to the last game of the season, really, to be fair. But yeah, something tells me in my head that the way that Barnsley play, they've sort of taken advantage of that five subs. Um, they've What they've done, if you've watched Barnsley, is they'll attack from the very first minute and then in the second half, they'll make at least two substitutions and they go ham and tong. Um, so they kind of have those fresh legs to kind of mix it up a bit and they've taken advantage. But yeah, in that manager that they've got, Ishmaeli, um, he's been a real surprise for everyone in that league, I think. He's given a fresh approach. Um, but yeah, I think Brentford have probably more 
like technical players than versus say Barnsley. I think they're a bit more savvy in that sense. The problem I find with Brentford is do they bottle it at that final stage? Um, yeah, more often than not, that's where it seems to be the problem with Brentford. Um, what about you, Andy? Who do you fancy from that mix? I think Brentford. Um, I mean, I thought they would go up last year as automatic mm. promotion, but they they um, absolutely bottled it towards the end of the season. Um, uh, yeah, I think uh, looking at the teams there, I think I think it'd be really exciting. I mean, um, Brentford, Swansea, Barnsley, and Bournemouth. That's a relatively even matched playoffs um you know i think for the sake of variety i want to see bournemouth up there um they they're really smart of their recruitment um you know obviously just moved into a new ground i mean they keep buying strikers from lower divisions selling them on selling them on i mean they've had you know mope over the years they've had uh, ollie watkins sold him uh got to ivan tony in um he was playing you know i think it was, was it peterborough he was playing for yeah. um beforehand um he's done really really well so you know i think to see that kind to see what kind of uh, recruitment they could come up with and whether they can keep that style of football going into the next season um i think it'd be interesting i think swans are another intriguing one as well because um they came down to the championship um you know with quite a bump and you mm. know they, obviously although they had a good time in the Premier League in the Carling Cup they had to reset the way that we did things you know they had quite a few players on big wages coming down from the Premier League like Borja Baston and you know people like that and they've reset you know with Steve Cooper they've um, built a really good young side um, mm. you know that play good attacking football uh, proficient and you know and they're operating on a minuscule budget that they were when they were in the Premier League like they've learned how to adapt uh, so for example if Swansea don't get promoted Swansea don't get promoted this season they will be fine uh, Bournemouth I think they're the ones that need yeah. the promotion more because yeah. you think about the money they i mean they decided to spend 15 million pounds on dominic solanke and if you're the sort of club that's that does that kind of business then it's fair to say you're going to be a little bit in trouble when you go down to the championship you're not earning premier league money anymore um and i think if they don't go up this season um because i still because they didn't really sell that many of their players uh, maybe because most of them were shite, but mm. they didn't really sell most of their players, any of their players to raise funds. Um, even the better players, some of the better players that they've got. So I think if they don't get promoted this season, I think there could be a lot of trouble. Um, yeah. And they could be like, you say like Middlesbrough, for instance, when they went down uh, in the last in the Premier League, they spent big trying to get back up. Mm. Didn't happen. And now they're sort of penny pinching at the sort of mid-table mediocrity in, you know, QPR or another club. So yeah, I think Bournemouth are the ones that need it. Uh, Brentford yeah. would be nice for a bit of variety. Uh, Swansea would be good because of the football they play. And I think as a romantic story, a bit like with Burnley, I think it'd be absolutely mm. great for the you know for you know for that part of Yorkshire um in Barnsley to do that. Um again they're another club that have done quite well. I think they've you know another player that one player I've been impressed with is Daryl Dyke. He's been on uh, loan from Orlando. Uh, I do follow a little bit of MLS myself and there's quite a lot of untapped talent there. Um and he's he's an absolute unit of a man. Mm. Like he he absolutely bullies defenders uh, started scoring a good few goals as well. And he's the sort of person that you could imagine doing quite well in the long term in English football. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think they're all 
I think with the exception of Bournemouth, they're all quite set up to give it, give it a good crack. And if they have to go again next season, they should. But yeah, I think Bournemouth, uh, sorry, Brentford will should go up. Should go up, yeah. I think that's always been the question with Brentford. They're always a should-be team, but they've never actually done it. Um, on Bournemouth, I have to say, um, their fans aren't too kind of raving about Jonathan Woodgate right now. Um, <laughs> Not a shocker, is it? Yeah, no no surprises there. But yeah, I mean, even against Wickham, I mean, they did not look like a side that was, you know, building form. Uh, I mean, granted, they did rest a few players, but they had players like David Brooks on the pitch who was playing Premier League football last season. So, you know, it's not like they had a really bad squad. Um yeah, I think with you in terms of Dyke, who plays for Barnsley, I think he's a force. He'll be a really good player. Um, another player is Carly Woodrow as well, um, currently banging in the goals for Barnsley. And I think if Barnsley don't go up, he'll be snapped up by one of the clubs that have gone up this season, potentially. So wait and see on that one. Anyway, we'll move into Scotland. Uh, Craig, we want your reflection on that certain old fan match. Um, but we also had a question around whether we feel Aberdeen are going to be the uh, challengers for Rangers next season. So um, before we get your thoughts on that, potentially, let's talk about that 4-1 win. Um, and I loved the uh, celebration by Morelos uh, Salty Bay. Um, that was really good. Um, but yeah, what was your thoughts on the particular match? I mean, Ryan Kent seemed to be taking the mick out of Celtic defenders, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, as easy as an old form game as you're likely to get, and you're right to highlight Ryan Kent because they are terrified of him. They, remember, we spoke when Dortmund played Sevilla in the Champions League, and we said that yeah. every time Harlan gets the ball and turns at them, the Sevilla defence shit themselves. Brian Kent does that to Celtic where you can see he picks the ball up their bench their players everyone gets on everyone's panicking um, just turned them inside out all, all day I mean Steve Davis Morelos two a man were, were fantastic um, really really straightforward one all you're thinking this could be reasonably tight here and then just came out and just absolutely romped it and you know 4-1 it was, a, it was a fair scoreline at the end of the day. I'm delighted for Jermaine Defoe to get his own form goal. He came on um, and turned. The guy called Walsh plays for Celtic and he's that young player coming through the youth academy and he's sort of their great new hope. It was interesting to see him get turned inside out by a 38-year-old Jermaine Defoe uh, who scored. And I'm so, I'm so, so glad. One of the, the kind of lesser told stories this year is that Jermaine Defoe is going to get his first league winner's medal, which is which is great. I'm, I'm so glad we've got him at the club. He's a great example for all the younger players and uh, he's just an absolute gentleman and I hope he gets a coaching role at some stage with us as well but uh, yeah straightforward we, we had the Scottish Cup game uh, a few weeks ago and I said that we won 2-0 but I really wanted Rangers to put their foot down and embarrass Celtic and, and really just put the cherry on the cake but I understood Cup game couldn't do that um, but Rangers did it did it this, this day and, and did it really well and Celtic who really needed something to give them a bit of hope for next season they really needed a good mm. performance or you know, to keep it tight or do something, um, we just we just owned them, just absolutely owned them, and it's 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 really strange because we've almost come full circle from three years ago when we were weaking back up into the Premier League and just going into from games with just no hope, knowing we we're going to get a pasting, you know, just mm. really hope rather than anything else to to go into from games now knowing I mean, knowing we're going to win the game, um, and it's just coming. It's a, a testament to Stephen Gerrard and the backroom staff that they've done that in a short space of time. Celtic have got a big job on. They've got a serious job on because they've yeah. still not appointed a manager to our, to our best knowledge. 
if it was my club, and I'm glad it's not, obviously, but if it was mine, I'd be wanting a manager in now to talk, start talking about transfer targets yeah. now because if they if they finish up the season, we're almost in June. The the Scottish League starts on the thirty first of July, so it starts before the English Premier League. So say end of the season, beginning of June, a manager comes in. At best, they've got seven eight weeks really to start bringing mm. in transfers. So if I was a Celtic supporter, the longer this goes on, the more worried I would be. And, and much like Spurs, all these fantasy names that they think they're going to get. It's it's to get the head out of the clouds. It's not it's not gonna mm. be Jose Jose Mourinho was mentioned <laughs> as well, but Rafa Benitez, Xavi, Eddie Howe, it's not these are not you're gonna get, but the Celtic board really need to get their finger out and, and get someone in quick. Otherwise, um I'll be putting money on Rangers to be champions by at least fifteen points again next season. Quite quite comfortable because mm. even if we sold one or two players, the Celtic squad are still nowhere near us. You look at their team now, Edward wants out. Um, I've never seen a guy score an old firm equaliser and look like he couldn't even be arsed. <laughs> yeah. It was like he scored against his kids in his back and back garden. He's got the equaliser. He's just like, yeah, no problem. He's fucking, fucking walked on. He's phoned it in. He's not interested. He's off. Ayers off. Scott Brown's away. Um, Black Salt's on loan. Yeah. John Joe Kenny's on loan. They've not got a goalkeeper between them. They've got a serious, serious building job and they need a manager in now to start planning his transfers. Otherwise, they're going to start on the back foot. Rangers are going to win the league again next season. Mm, but to answer, to answer the question, sorry, uh, uh, Aberdeen, yeah. Aberdeen are just one of those clubs. Aberdeen had Rangers out of the league for seven years and did fuck all. Didn't get anywhere fucking yeah. close to Celtic. That's just who Aberdeen are. They're just a tin pot club. No offence to <laughs> BHC if you're an Aberdeen fan. They are fucking nowhere near them. So, yeah, the answer's no. Celtic will still be um, Rangers nearest challengers. But I predict now that Rangers will win the league by at least 15 points again next season. I think an interesting point, though, on this is around the same time you had, obviously, Abdeen sack their manager, Derek McInnes at the time, as Celtic kind of dispersed of Lennon, right? Um, Aberdeen have brought a young manager in Stephen Glass into the club. They seem to be making signings that maybe Celtic would be making, for example. So, I uh, saw recently, I can't remember his name, but there's a young, or I would say not maybe young, but he's a Scottish international uh, centre-back who plays for Motherwell, I believe. He's on a free transfer that they've signed in. And obviously Celtic still, no, like you said, no manager, no plans. Obviously they've got a chief executive that's going, right, for example. And that new chief executive hasn't made any sounds um, obviously it's going to be not just a season of pain, there's going to be a number of seasons as you allude to, because I think Rangers are going to be so far ahead of them that, you know, you guys could be making money from the Champions League outings, for example, and continue to reinvest that into the team. So Aberdeen realistically could be that second challenger, but I don't think they'll be the challenger for the title as such. I think they'll be just one of those teams that will be there just to kind of say, here's a competitive match for you guys because Celtic are going to be potentially going to that third or fourth position right now. Yeah, I think we may be, we may be doing Hibs of this credit. Hibs have been quite good mm. this season as well and Jack Ross has got them playing well. They're in a cup final also. So yeah, Hibs and Aberdeen, do you know what's good? It's good for the league. It's good for, for Scotland if we've got you know internationalists who are not playing for Rangers and Celtic, but who are challenging, playing well. Um, you know, I, I would love a, another Scottish team to get to the Europa League group stages. An example, I, I cannot remember the last time a Scottish club, maybe ever, um, got mm. to the group stages of like the new format of the Champions League or, or the Europa League. You know, they tend to get into the fourth qualifying round and get fucked off some club from fucking Belarus or something. It's just, it's, 
it's good for Scottish football if we can get if we can get these other teams playing well. But yeah, I would still imagine Celtic will be finishing second um, behind Rangers next season. Cool. We're going to skim some of the leagues just for the listeners' benefits. Um, I do have a of time. Go on. I do have a question. Uh, just a brief thing uh, interlude that happens. So, what's your thoughts, Craig, on the um, Mourinho to Roma situation? Because that kind of came out the blue a little bit. Um, yeah, obviously, obviously, he's got a hell of a record in Italy with Inter Milan. And maybe because of the style of football that he plays, it could arguably be more suited to Italian football. Uh, how do you think that's going to go, especially with some of the um, ex-Manchester United personnel uh, <laughs> in that squad? <laughs> so I have my own views on how that might end up. But uh, what are your thoughts? Well, the way the way it's going to go is that he's going to have a, a relatively successful first season. Um, the ne- next summer, he will not get the players that he wants. They will start to fall out, and he'll be gone by the following su- summer. Right, that's the, that's how it's going to happen. Um, I don't like the I don't like the point at a number of levels. The first one is that Mourinho is one of those managers that could make an impact, but it's a short, sharp impact, backed by a lot of money. Now, Roma were bought by the Friedkin Group um, last year, who are an investment business from. America, and they're one of those investment companies that are so rich it just makes you fucking sick. It's like billions and billions of dollars. So if they come in and say, right, Jose, there's 250 million euros, go and build a squad to challenge this Scudetto in the next two years, you can maybe get some success at that. But what Roma really, really need is a sort of a five-year plan, a three to five-year plan that says, right, this is what we're going to do to get us back into the top four, back into the contention, is that to slowly build a team around that. And Mourinho is the opposite kind of manager for that because that's not what he does. He doesn't bring mm. through youth, doesn't develop players. He's a very much a, an impact manager, manages big players and gets results. So unless this business, like these ownership, are going to seriously back Mourinho now, it will eventually go through the usual Mourinho cycle of initial elation, then eventual disappointment. The second thing I don't really understand is that a lot of, I follow quite a lot of Roma groups on social media and they're fucking loving it. They're thinking this is the best thing ever. And I'm like, I've got a feeling that a lot of these people maybe don't watch a lot of English football and haven't really seen what's happened at United and Spurs and and think they're probably getting 2010, 2011 Mourinho and that he's going to bring that that treble winning side that Inter and all that came Mm. with it to this Roma side and, and Mourinho's not that man anymore. Football's moved on. And that they're not getting that version of Mourinho anymore. He's not that man. Yeah. So I think there's some Roma fans that probably are not familiar with his journey recently. He might be in for a bit of a shock. Uh, and that's why I just don't think this is the right move. It's just not. And there's a lot of your managers out there that could have could have got. I'd have preferred Sari as an example. I think Sari yeah. would be the right kind of manager to say, right, don't worry about this year, next year, or the year after. In 2025, you want to build a squad that wants the challenge. And I think Sari was probably a guy who could really breed that through and build that squad. But for me, Mourinho's not going to be there long enough to do that. So like I said, unless we're going to back him heavy and quickly, this this is going to end in tears. Mm. While we're on the theme of Italian football, Juventus are losing to AC Milan 3-0 as we speak. That's Have you seen the Sevilla and Sevilla just gone 2 and up against Real Madrid? Ooh. Yeah, they were winning 1-0 as well at that point beforehand. So, um, yes, yeah, I was going to bring you to this topic, Craig. Um, 
But yeah, no, more importantly, um, in terms of looking to Germany as well, I don't know if you guys saw, Xavi Martinez is also going to be leaving Bayern in the summer. Um, apparently his contract's not going to be renewed. Um, but what did we make of Jens Lehmann's sacking, uh, by the way? I don't know if you guys saw what his uh, WhatsApp message came about to uh, one of the uh, Sky Germany kind of commentators, Dennis Ogo, uh, calling him a token black guy. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, is quickly dismissed by them. And then I don't know if you also saw Christian Mitzelda, um, the story around him. Um, I won't share too much oh. because it's pretty sickening, but I would recommend viewers to search up on that case. Um, not pretty, should we say, but yeah, Jens Lehmann, um, Craig can see, yeah, uh, you did see that. So, uh, yeah, pretty shocking, wasn't it? It's just, uh, what a strange thing to. To, to say to have the impulse to 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 open up your phone, yeah. type that message out and then send it, and then to send it to the person you were speaking about as well. It's just <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's just fucking bizarre. Just absolutely bizarre. But credit to Hertha. Um, no investigation, no trial. It was just you're sacked. That's you're right. just, yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're fucking gone. So um, you know they acted really swiftly, which is to be applauded. But it's what what a, what a strange thing. It's not funny. It's not even fact. It's just not even it doesn't add into the conversation i think he take he, he meant mm -hmm. to text one of his guy colleagues saying is he your token black guy which i don't know why you would feel the, the urge to send that anyway but then to send yeah. it to the person you're talking about is just fucking bizarre absolutely bizarre but yeah no good for him i'm glad he's sacked um and hopefully he struggles to find work um in football going forward cool well i think what we'll do is we'll reflect a lot more of the european football on thursday's pods um we'll be joined by gavin mack from the mad sports network as well for that particular podcast um so i'll confirm that in the following few days so before we move into part two where craig talks about the football matches you have to watch uh craig i had to be your equivalent last time on the pods I uh, called out uh, Zenit St. Petersburg versus Locomotive Moscow. Uh, they won 6-1, um, so that's a good result if anyone did watch it. Um, but I wanted to kind of reflect in terms of, if you haven't, have a look at Artem Juba. I don't know if you guys saw it, but he picked up his winning medal for Locomotive... Oh, sorry, oh, yeah. Zenit St. Yeah. Petersburg, dressed up as Deadpool, picking up his medal. <laughs> Brilliant. Do you know why? Why do you do that? Do we know? Is that like an insane? No idea, or? but he is quite of a weird fella in terms of he's quite out there. Uh, but yeah, very weird. Very weird. So anyway, Craig, over to you for part two and introduce the listener and fellow watchers right now in terms of the matches we should be looking out for in the next few days. Yeah, so I've only done uh, up to Thursday because obviously we're mm. back on Thursday and we'll talk about the weekend's game, but uh, on Tuesday, you've got United versus Leicester, uh, Southampton versus Palace, and Levante versus Barcelona. On Wednesday, you've got Schalke versus Hertha, Livingston versus Rangers, Sevilla versus Valencia, uh, Trino versus AC Milan, Sassuolo versus Juventus, Atalanta versus Benevento, Lazio, Parma, Inter versus Roma. I'm dreading that one already. Uh, Chelsea versus Arsenal, and Atletico versus Sociedad. So the way that things go, Atletico could take a, a, a jump towards the, the title on Wednesday. Uh, and then mm. on Thursday, only really one game to talk about, which is obviously the rescheduled United versus Liverpool game, which will be United's third of four games in seven days. So uh, <laughs> not an ideal finish to the season for Man United. But luckily, Champions League looks like it's absolutely secured. And they've got a Europa League final to look for. I think if Man United had been on the borderline of fourth and fifth, 
I'd have been a yeah. bit more worried about their congestion, but luckily they've done enough so far to, to be quite safe. Amazing. So we'll move into the end of the show. So thank you to the watchers out there. Hope you enjoyed this particular video live stream. And more importantly to the listeners, hope you enjoy this pod. And thank you for the increased follows on social media platforms. Just continue to share the love where you can. Uh, more importantly, wish Andy and Craig a good week. And listener, hope you enjoy your week. And we'll be back live from Friday morning at 8 a.m. So thank you and goodbye. Thank you.